I, I'm wearing my glasses today, thank God, because I can still see my notes up here. Uh, we, we're, are, we're still trying to solve our light problem up here. So, uh, I was watching a TED Talk recently with a TV uh, producer, TV and te- uh, movie producer, J.J. Abrams. And um, he's done some of the new Star Wars films, and his uh, famous show on television was Lost. Did anybody get lost in that show? It went on uh, forever. But he was talking about being a kid, and he really liked magic and going to the magic store. And uh, one time he went to the magic store, and he saw this thing called a mystery box. And you, you couldn't open it and figure out what was in it, but you could buy it. And so uh, he bought it, and he said, I never opened it. I still have it to this day, because I always like the idea of a mystery that doesn't get revealed, which is why you never really learn what the heck is going on in the TV show Lost. Well, I always wanted mysteries to be revealed, uh, which is why in the weeks leading up to Christmas, um, sorry, Mom and Dad, I know you're listening to the recording, uh, I would sneak in my parents' closets and carefully peel the scotch tape back in the wrapping and make sure that the Super Nintendo uh, was was in there. And I'm dating myself there with Super Nintendo. <laughs> the meaning of what we celebrate today and in the next eight weeks, the word epiphany, is uh, a revelation, a manifestation of something. It's about a mystery being revealed. More specifically, the mystery that gets revealed is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And that is why we get the passage in the gospel today about the wise men. Now, we're going to, in a few minutes, sing the offertory hymn, We Three Kings. And at the risk of ruining it for you, (laughs) I have to tell you, they were not kings. And uh, we're never told that there were only three of them. Um, You can look in the gospel reading right now and see that it says some wise men. It doesn't tell us how many. Now, the reason that there's an assumption that they were kings comes from the reading, actually, that we just heard from the prophet Isaiah a few moments ago. I'm going to quote just a bit of it. Um, He said, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And he describes all these kings coming and worshiping this this Messiah figure. Um, And the assumption that there were only three of them comes from the mention of the three gifts, of course, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But historically, it was much more likely that these sort of folks would have traveled in a bigger group than just three. Now, the word uh, that we translate wise men in the Greek is magoi, and that is where we derive, the word from which we derive our word for magic or magician. And so what these wise men were, they were pagan astrologers and dream interpreters and practitioners of magic who probably served kings in the Babylonian world. And most likely, scholars think that they probably knew about this birth of Jesus because they had interaction with Jews who were living in Babylon. And so something powerful is working in their hearts and drawing them to this Jewish king who has been been born in the Christ child. The important point of all these little silly historical facts is this. You couldn't be much more Gentile than these fellows. They probably believed in multiple deities. They were not members of the covenant God had with Israel, and they certainly were not ethnic ancestors of Abraham. But something draws them. Something is happening, something profound that will change history. And we could say that, in a sense, this picture we have of these wise men kneeling before this infant king alongside his Jewish family and their friends is a picture, a microcosm of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Jews and Gentiles together, united under the one true God in his son, Jesus. Amazing. Later, um, St. Paul, reflecting on this reality, uh, will write this. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Perfect way to start our Epiphany sermon series on members of the body, what it means to be members of the body of Jesus Christ, of this body of Jews and Gentiles gathered together under the Lord of heaven and earth. We are going to discuss the implications of this mystery that has been revealed for us over the next eight weeks. And today what we will discuss specifically is the idea that the members of the body are knit together in Jesus Christ as a unified people who share a common vocation in the world. A unified people that share a common vocation in the world. We're going to look now at what Paul has to say about all of this because the passage from Ephesians 3 is in there very intentionally because it's Paul's kind of theological commentary on what has happened with the revelation to the Gentiles. And so we're going to hang out there for a few minutes. If you want to kind of follow along, I'm just going to be reading a little bits and pieces of this passage and commenting on them. Uh, Paul makes this comment. He says, in former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed, right? It was just a mystery box and it wasn't opened yet. And what is that mystery? He says, that is the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, members of the same body. That's the picture that you see of these pagan wise men gathered around the Jewish Messiah. They are becoming members of the same body. So for a period of history, God had chosen Israel as his people. They were his elect nation. They were his representatives in the temple of creation. And their vocation was to live out a unique way of life for Yahweh, honoring him, fearing him, loving him, obeying him, and also to make him known and to draw others in. Remember the promise. We keep going back to this to Abraham. I will bless all nations of the world through you and through your family. And that was their purpose was to make known the true God of heaven and earth to the rest of the world. They were actually meant to be instruments of unity, unifying people under the one true God in a world full of false gods. Now, this was actually, this is the vision that we hear from Isaiah chapter 60 today of people being gathered in into the flock of Israel. Listen to what he says prophetically. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and rejoice. See, this is a picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament. There's this vision of the other nations of the world coming to gather into God's people, into God's holy place towards the people of Israel. But Israel got comfortable. Israel got comfortable and they got insular about being God's people and their religion became less about truly seeking God and seeking to manifest his presence in the world and more about going through the motions to feel good about themselves. Truly, truly tragic failure of vocation. And it's so easy for us to point our finger back at them historically and say, man, what a bunch of losers. They failed. But friends, the church of Jesus Christ is in the same danger today. 
because we lack the missionary zeal that we are called to have in spreading the gospel to our world. There is a reason the numbers of the church in the Western world continue to decline and decline and decline. I want to read you something from a, a very well-known missionary. Uh, he was a bishop in South India in the early 20th century. His name was Leslie Newbegin. He had written very powerful words about the mission of the church, and he says this in one of his writings. We have good news to tell. It is not communicated if the question uppermost in our minds is about the survival of the church. If we allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking of the church as one of the many good causes that need our support and will collapse if they are not adequately supported. He says, if our evangelism is at bottom an effort to shore up the tottering edifice of the church, then it will not be heard as good news. The church is in God's keeping. We have our Lord's word that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The crux of the matter is that we have been chosen to be the bearers of good news for the world. And the question is simply whether we are faithful in communicating it. I am challenged by that because I know that that is aimed at me and my own lack of sharing the gospel in my own community. Now, thanks be to God, despite Israel's failure to communicate the good news that they were supposed to communicate, God fulfills this vision that we heard in Isaiah of the world, the nations of the world coming to the Israel's light by bringing his Messiah into the world. Thanks be to God. And these Gentile wise men gathered around him is a sign that this vision is coming to pass. It is being fulfilled that God will reach out with the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. And for that, you and I can be thankful in this room today. Now, Paul in Ephesians is talking about, uh, he's been, he spent all of chapter two talking about what it means for Jews and Gentiles to be united in Jesus, or what we call the church of Jesus Christ. And the question comes up now, what is the church's vocation? Well, Paul comments on this. He says that the mystery of God's Messiah was revealed, and he says, so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Okay, wisdom of God. What's he talking about when he says the wisdom of God? Because that's, that's important for us to know because it's the church's job apparently to make this known. But the wisdom of God is the wise purpose of God in ordering human history in such a way that the savior of the world would re- be revealed at the right time so that all people would have an opportunity to call on his name. Now think about the local implications of that for us. We exist here in this place at this time by no accident. We are not, we exist in this place and at this time by God's perfect providence because he desires to make Christ known through us in this place and through this place at this time in all of human history. I want us to be thinking about that reality as we look into a new year ahead and ask, what is God calling us to do in 2019? How are we going to faithfully make Christ known? Because that is his will for us in the way that he has ordered us here at this time in history. Now, most of us don't wake up every day and think to ourselves, Today is another day. Is it a part of God's wise ordering of human history? How can I partner with him today in, in completing his purposes and accomplishing his purposes and making Christ known? 
how might our lives be different if we did contemplate this reality on a daily basis? How might they be different? Now, Paul goes on and he mentions that the church is proclaiming or making known God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities. Now, what is he talking about? Political rulers or church rulers or what is he talking about? No, you can be sure that whenever Paul talks about rulers and authorities or when he says principalities and powers, he is talk, he's getting into spiritual warfare mode. He's talking about what we need to think about when we think about what all of this means in the unseen realm. This whole Messiah, Messiah revealed thing means something profound for the unseen world. Because rulers and authorities are the malevolent spiritual powers that defy God's authority and keep humans enslaved to sin and rebellion. Keep them blinded to seeing the good news of Christ. Uh, Paul actually wrote in an, another plan, in another, uh, one of his letters, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's little G God. He's talking about the enemy. Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I have to say, when I look at the world, I see that the, the, the God of this world is having great success right now, friends. And it is the church. It is our call to make known the riches of the gospel so that the blinders come off of people's eyes and they see the light of Christ. See, God's plan is to reveal him through us, through his church. And this is revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and it is not a happy surprise for them. It is an in-your-face victory for the kingdom of God. And when the church is being the church and we are doing what we have been given to do when we are living out our mission, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places tremble because they hate to see us doing it because they know that the light of Christ will save people and will open their eyes to who Jesus is. You see, we have been given this missionary task to become active in spreading the good news that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to die for our sins and reconcile an estranged world to her heavenly father. It's that simple. It's that simple. And that message, when it's actively advanced, will unify people into the body. It will bring them together as members of one body, the restored, baptized, forgiven people of God who follow Jesus as Lord and live their lives for God and for others. Now, Practical implications for us moving forward. I want to go through three briefly with you today. The first is this. Members of the body must fundamentally of a fundamental importance embrace the access we have. Members of the body of Christ have access to God. Now think about that for a second. There was a time when we did not, and now we do, because of what Jesus has done for us. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 3. This is towards the end of the passage there. He's talking about this whole mystery that has been revealed. And he says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that God has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Friends, we are too shy with God we are too shy with God. You look at these promises and, and see that God has given access to himself, to his holy presence, to us through his son. If someone handed you a debit card and a pin number and they said it's loaded, there's five million in the account, you and I would not be shy to go on a shopping spree. 
We would not be shy. We would not be reluctant. But friends, our Heavenly Father has given us something far better, far more valuable, far more satisfying. Access to himself in Jesus Christ. And he calls us, he tells us to approach him with boldness and confidence. And we're, we're, consent, we're content to just say a few prayers in the car on the way to work. Why do we, I want to ask a question, why do we find it so easy to spend more time engaging our electronic devices than we do engaging God in prayer? This is a question that I have personally been challenged with recently. Perhaps because it feels more immediate to us than God's presence. How then could we approach God more excited about our access to him than the information our phones and tablets provide us? See, smartphones are all about having access to things, right? Access, access, access to shopping, social media, flight information, photos, games, access, access, access. I have recognized a need in my own life to detach, literally detach myself from sometimes to move away from it, take it out of my pocket and embrace the access that I have to God. And sometimes that is simply in the form of enjoying my family without distraction of my phone and simply thanking God for the gift that they are. And sometimes it's by sitting in silence with the Bible in my lap and reflectively reading the scriptures. Sometimes it's sitting in front of an icon and praying as I hold people's names before the Lord in prayer. Friends, God has given us access in Jesus, and he is waiting for us to actually take hold of it, to truly take hold of it. The second thing is this. Members of the body are to make known the content of the mystery box. We are to make known the content of the mystery box. Our missionary call is to open up that mystery box to others and to say, look at Jesus. He's what you're looking for. He's what you need. He's the only one who can heal you. He's the only one that can forgive you of your sins and reconcile to you to your heavenly father. Paul says, how are people going to know the good news if there's no one running to tell them? If there's no one running to share the good news. God used the star of Bethlehem to lead the pagan wise men to Jesus. But friends, now he uses us, his church, to lead the world to his son. Let me give you a challenge. Let me give you a challenge for the new year. In 2019, share the gospel with at least one person. At least one person. I know some of us are starting to sweat right now. <laughs> here's, what, here's just a practical point of advice. Take a minute to write down why you believe what you believe. Some of us haven't done that yet. Actually reflected very much on that. Sit down and reflect on why you believe what you believe and how you have known the Lord to be at work in your own life. Because this will be helpful because you will have that in your mind, having written down and reflected on it, when God opens up an opportunity for you to share Jesus with other people, which is something you need to pray for. Pray for that opportunity and God will grant it. It can be something as simple as just being with someone that maybe you don't even know that well and say, I believe that Jesus cares for you and what you're going through. Can I pray for you right now? I don't usually do this in sermons, but I want to, I'm going to explicitly make a book recommendation to you. If evangelism scares 
scares the daylights out of you. This is a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. It's a very well-known book uh, in the evangelical world, but it's incredibly pertinent to evangelism. It's by a lady named Rebecca Pippert, and it's full of her own stories of God calling her to be an evangelist and a teacher and a writer, and it will give you uh, some tools, and it will encourage you to have the conversational skills and to have what it takes to engage people in honest, open, genuine dialogue where you actually care about the people and look for opportunities to share the gospel. Out of the salt shaker, get it. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. If you if you don't have the money for it, tell me and I'll get you a copy. Let me read to you something from uh, Penn Gillette, Penn, Penn of Penn and Teller. Everybody know Penn and Teller, that mag- magician entertainment duo? Penn Gillette is a staunch atheist. He does not believe in God. And I want to read you something that he said. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? From an atheist, I am challenged by that. I am challenged by that. I would bet money that the wise men went back to their pagan friends and neighbors and told them about the king. Because you can't adore King Jesus and then keep the experience to yourself. That is the biggest danger before the church of Jesus Christ today is to do church and to come and worship and to keep the experience to ourselves. That is the danger. Which brings us to our final point. Members of the body are to adore the risen king, to adore the risen king. See, we gather together today, not at a manger to adore him, but in these designated places of worship that we call churches to adore our king. St. Paul wrote famously to the Romans. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, your bodies, right? Members of the body bring, they actually bring their bodies into these gathering places with other bodies to adore the risen Christ. You can't get what you get from coming to a gathering like this from an online sermon. You can't get it. You can't get the formation that you get when you come together and worship the risen Christ with people in a church. The wise men traveled miles and miles for weeks on end to worship the Christ child. See, they were very intentional about their adoration. They made it a priority. They planned out their trip. They thought about the gifts that they would bring him. How intentional are we, members of the body of Christ, at adoring our risen king, at simply adoring him? See, the, the supplication and the asking for things part is easy, right? That what I call the what about Bob prayer life. Gimme, 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 I need, I need. But making practices of just adoring the Lord takes more intention. It takes more purpose. See, is gathering with the saints to worship and adore Christ a priority for you? Do you plan for it? Or is church... Is worship, is corporate worship just an option that's open to you if you if you can get around to it, if convenient? See, to adore Jesus as king, you have to gaze upon his cross. 
You have to gaze upon his cross and ponder his costly sacrifice, a sacrifice that was made for you personally. He stood in your place and in my place and took the penalty for the sins, for our sins and for the sins of the world so that we could be reconciled to the Father in heaven who loves us. Now, we're coming to that point in our service soon where we we prepare to gather around this altar. And uh, what we do when we gather around this altar is we celebrate the cross. Paul says, every time you drink from the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death. We celebrate the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And I have to tell you that this is one of the greatest opportunities to adore Jesus right here in the Eucharist. Right here in the Eucharist. There's a sense in which we experience a weekly epiphany every time we come up here and receive the bread and the wine. Because God manifests his presence to us in a holy and glorious and mysterious way to strengthen us and to nourish us. There's that wonderful story um, in Luke chapter 24. Everything has happened. Everything has come to a head. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he meets a couple of his disciples walking along a road and they don't recognize him in his glorified body. And he's walking along with them and he's pointing out, you dum-dums, don't you know the scriptures? This was all foretold and they're just not getting it. They're not, they're not getting it. They don't see him. And then they invite him to their home for a meal. This is very interesting little detail. Luke actually uses the language. Jesus is sitting there with them. They still don't recognize him. Luke actually uses the language that he does in the institution narrative where Jesus institutes the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And he says this, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then here's what happens. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And this is what they say to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And they run. And Luke tells us they tell the other disciples how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's the same for us in the breaking of the bread. Jesus' physical presence cannot be seen, but he makes himself known. And through that epiphany, he gathers his church together to himself. That's why we come up here together to feed and to strengthen us and to send us back out those doors into the mission field that is the world around us to make known the great mystery that our God and Father has revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, at the dawn of this new year, we give you thanks. Our hearts are full of gratitude for all that has come in the last year, all that you have provided for us as individuals and families and especially as a church together. We thank you for the year ahead. But Lord, we also, like every other part of your church throughout the world, are in danger of losing the zeal that you have called us to have in sharing the gospel in our own personal lives and in our communities and through our work together as members of your body. So we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us as you did to the disciples at Pentecost to empower us to speak in the language of our culture that barely knows how to listen to truth anymore or process it. Give us wisdom in how to speak the message of the gospel and how to live out 
the message of the gospel that you have sent your son to die for the sins of the world because of your great love for us. We ask all this in the power and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.